portion of God's Word. You can open up one of those blue church Bibles located underneath the seats around you. Flip that to page 844 and that will bring you to Mark chapter 8, verse 34. I know you guys thought that I would be in 1 John this week, but I want to just step back real quick and look at this passage before we look at 1 John next week. Because if you don't know this or you weren't here, we completed the book or gospel of Mark last week. And when I began the gospel of Mark in September of 2010, I said at that time that going through the Gospel of Mark would reveal to us the real Jesus. The real Jesus. Not the distorted one that many in our world understand Him to be. I hope our study in Mark has been an encouragement to you and has helped you understand just how incredible Jesus is and how absolutely worthy of our devotion, our obedience, and our very lives He is. That is important for us to grasp, beloved, because Christ, the Lord, Jesus, calls on us to follow Him. To follow Him. To become His disciples. Or to say it another way, to become Christians. To become Christians. As I prepare to transition from Mark, where we have seen Jesus for who He really is and was, to 1 John a book that will reveal to us what being a Christian really is, I wanted to go back and simply remind you of something that Jesus said in this particular passage. So if you have your Bibles open there, look at it with me as I read it. It's very short. Mark chapter 8, verse 34. Jesus here, and calling the crowd to Him with His disciples, He said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. So this morning, if you have your bulletin with you on the inside of it, there is an outline that you can follow along. We're going to consider two challenging requirements for followers of Jesus. That's what we're going to do this morning. Two challenging requirements for the followers of Jesus. Of Jesus, so that we might know what the Lord expects of those of us who identify themselves as Christians. Beloved, you call yourself a Christian? Okay. You want to know what the Lord expects of you? Okay. We're going to look at it this morning from at least from this passage. Two things, very simple self denial and submission. Self denial and submission. Now, it would help to give a little context to what's going on before Jesus actually made this statement. Was this out of the blue? No, it wasn't. Well, jump back a few verses. If you still have your Bibles open, I hope you do. Just jump back up to verse 27. And we'll read there, down to verse 33. These are the passages right before He made this statement, called the crowd to Himself and His disciples, and made this very challenging statement. Beginning in verse 27, And Jesus went on with His disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked his disciples, Who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others one of the prophets. And he asked them, But who do you say that I am? Peter answered him, You are the Christ. And he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. And he began to teach them, that the Son of Man must, must suffer many things 
and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed. And after three days, rise again. And he said this plainly. And Peter took him aside, that is Jesus, and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Now, beloved, Peter's good confession, as we refer to it, that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, the long-anticipated hope of the nation of Israel and the very world, led to this shocking announcement by Jesus about God's will or specific plan for his life. Something that had to happen. Peter didn't get it then, but Peter got it later. He came to understand what Jesus was talking about. He he explained that in Acts chapter 2, verse 23, when he was preaching to a Jewish population there. And he said in that chapter, in that verse, This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless man. This Jesus you delivered up, how? How did this come about? According to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. This was God's will for Christ. In verse 31 of Mark 8, Jesus as we saw here just a moment ago, spoke of his upcoming suffering, rejection, and murder. And that kind of talk was no doubt unsettling and unacceptable to his disciples. Peter rises up, speaking on behalf of the twelve, rebuked Jesus for what sounded like a terrible and tragic announcement. But Jesus did not allow Peter's reprimand to stand unchallenged. Jesus strongly chastised him in front of the eleven and pointed out that Peter was focused, this is it, beloved, he was focused more on flawed human concerns and desires rather than on the flawless will of God. He was concerned more about self-interest Man's interest more than he was concerned about God's concerns and God's interest. And Jesus rebuked him sharply for it. See, Jesus' startling words here about his future, certain by the way, certain, not maybe, must happen, his certain future sufferings had serious implications for his disciples, for those who followed him, those who identified as his followers. If suffering was going to be a necessary reality for their master, for their leader, then what might be expected of those who follow this master or leader? Could it be that Jesus' disciples might have to endure suffering too as a result of following Him? Generally speaking, beloved, humans try their best to avoid anything that might lead to suffering or pain. Is that an accurate statement? 
I mean, if you don't, there's probably something a little wrong with you. Do you understand? Typically, generally speaking, we avoid pain. We run from pain. We don't volunteer for it, certainly. But following Jesus, as the disciples would soon learn, was not going to be an easy path at all. Remember the context here. And in fact, I would go on to say it was, it was and is more than just a difficult path, but an impossible path to pursue without the supernatural sustaining grace and strength of God. More about that later. This brings me now to the first of two requirements for the followers of Jesus. Self-denial. Self-denial. Let's look back at the text for a moment. Mark chapter 8, verse 34. And calling the crowd to Him with His disciples, He said to them, If anyone would come after Me, let him... What? Deny himself. Let's stop right there. Jesus called the crowd to Himself because what He had to say was something that everyone needed to hear. In other words, this was not a private message just for the twelve. Although, they certainly needed to hear it too. Jesus began His statement with if. You see it there in the text? If. If means there is a condition or stipulation or requirement intended. That's what if means. A condition or stipulation or requirement intended. Like we might say to a child, if you want this cookie, then you need to say please. No please. No cookie. You understand, right? Condition. Stipulation or requirement intended. So he is saying, if you want to follow me or come after me, this is what you must do. Jesus also said, if anyone, if anyone, key word, would come after me, meaning any person who desires to follow Jesus, not just the people that Jesus was talking to, not just the twelve disciples, but whoever throughout all time who desires to be a follower of Jesus Christ, or to say it another way, a Christian. They must be willing to accept the conditions or requirements for being a disciple or follower of Jesus clearly stated for us in verse 34 of Mark chapter 8. And the first requirement for the follower of Jesus, beloved, is to deny himself. Deny himself. Now, when you think deny here, I want you to think disregard, reject, or refuse to acknowledge. Disregard, reject, or refuse to acknowledge. You, know, you understand what it means to refuse to acknowledge. You're speaking to someone, someone comes up and wants to interrupt you, and you refuse to acknowledge them. Right? You focus on this other person. Or when your kids come, whoa, when your kids come up, keep an eye on that. When your kids come up and they're ba 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 ba, right? You refuse to acknowledge them at certain times in your day. This is a denial of them. Okay? So in that sense, that's the idea here. Deny, disregard, reject, refuse to acknowledge. So what is the disciple of Jesus supposed to disregard or refuse to acknowledge? Their children? No. Others? No. God? Certainly not. What's the text say, beloved? Themselves. Now, before we talk about what that means, let me explain to you 
what it doesn't mean. What it doesn't mean because there's some confusion. It does not mean that you reject or deny yourself wholesome things. Wholesome, good, right, healthy. Wholesome things that bring you enjoyment. For instance, like good tasting food or a comfortable bed or nice clothes or a healthy relationship. It does not mean that. Throughout church history, some people have confused this requirement by Jesus for self-denial with asceticism. Asceticism. Let me define that for you. It is a form of religious discipline in which a person denies themselves even good things in life, believing it is a way for them to somehow draw closer to God or become more spiritual. In history, monks have been known to practice a very strict version of asceticism, isolating themselves from the rest of the world, cutting themselves off from relationships, human interaction, sometimes even refusing the most basic comforts in life, like a bed, choosing rather to sleep on a hard, cold floor. Asceticism. Jesus is not asking those desiring to be His disciples to become monks or to deny things in life that God has graciously provided for us to enjoy and be thankful for. I am thankful for nice clothes. I am thankful for human relationships. I am thankful for a nice bed. One writer says this in regard to self-denial. It is not the denial of something to the self, but the denial of self itself. Another writer says it this way, and we'll keep probing this until we get it. It is to renounce, to reject the claims of self as no longer the supreme object of regard. My self-claims, my self-demands, my self-desires no longer rule and reign supreme in my life. I now refuse to acknowledge them. In other words, self-interest is no longer the most important thing in my life. Self-concern, beloved, takes a back seat to something much more significant for those who follow Christ. Being a disciple of Jesus means that my life can no longer be. This is what it means, beloved. My life can no longer be primarily about me, my goals, my ambitions, my desires, and my wants. It must be primarily about Jesus, His goals, His ambitions, His desires, and His wants. His interests must become over time my interest, my concerns. Therefore, it would be out of character for the disciple of Jesus to say something like this, this is my life and no one has the right to tell me how I'm going to live it. That typically comes out of the mouth of some rebellious teenager, but it is probably spoken inside of the minds of many adults. The Christian or follower of Jesus, beloved, must 
This is what the Word is saying. This is what Jesus is saying Himself. Must continually and increasingly deny self, or let me say it another way, die to self and live more and more for Christ. This should become a pattern in the Christian's life. A pattern. One writer adds this, to deny oneself means to cease to make self the object of one's life and actions. This involves a fundamental reorientation of the principle of life. God, not self, must be at the center of life. Do you understand that? Let's try another one. Self-denial is not to deny one's personality or to die as a martyr. It may include that but it does not necessarily mean that. Or to deny things, as in asceticism, we talked about that. Rather, it is the denial of self, turning away from the idolatry of self-centeredness, and every attempt to orient one's life by the dictates, the demands of self-interest. That's pretty radical, beloved. Yes. Christianity is radical in that sense. Very different than our culture around us. Maybe very different than how we grew up. Another writer says, to deny oneself, I like this, is to be aware only of Christ and no more of self. To see only Him who goes before. Remember, He's called us to follow Him. To see only Him who goes before and no more the road which is too hard for us. That's self-denial. That's self-denial. Self-denial for the Christian should not be seen as a negative, but as a positive, beloved. Since by it, we are transformed into the very image of Christ and continually set free from the bondage and destruction of sin in our lives. By it, we are liberated to live for God. That is a good thing, beloved. So I have this... I don't think it's a, it's a poem. I don't know if you want to call it that. But this thing I have on my wall, I read it at least once a month to try to reorient my thinking and my heart. It's titled Dying to Self. And I wanted to share it with you because I think it's, it's a very practical way of just fleshing out what does it mean to deny self and self-denial. We've looked at it. We've tried to get at it and define it. But what does it practically mean? I hope you enjoy this. I hope it will stick with you. I hope you won't be able to forget some of these words. Dying to Self, as it's titled. When you are forgotten neglected, or purposely set at naught. That means to be thought of as nothing. And you don't sting or hurt with the oversight, but your heart is happy being counted worthy to suffer for Christ. That is dying to self. When your good is evil spoken of, when your wishes are crossed, your advice disregarded, your opinion ridiculed. 
happens frequently as a pastor. And you refuse to let anger rise in your heart or even defend yourself, but take it all in patient, loving silence. That is dying to self. When you lovingly and patiently bear any disorder, any irregularity, any annoyance, when you can stand face to face with waste, folly, extravagance, spiritual insensibility, and endure it as Jesus did, that is dying to self. When you are content with any food, any offering, any clothing, any climate, any society, any solitude, any interruption by the will of God, that is dying to self. Here's one that I'm sure you'll like. When you never care to refer to yourself in conversation or record your own good works, or itch after commendation. You know what that means? Come on, tell me how good I am. When you can truly love to be unknown, that is dying to self. This one's helpful for the body of Christ. When you can see your brother prosper and have his needs met, and you can honestly rejoice with him in spirit, and feel no envy, nor question God, while your own needs are far greater, and you are in desperate circumstances. That is dying to self. When you can receive correction and reproof from one of less stature than yourself, and humbly submit, Inwardly as well as outwardly. That means in the heart too. Finding no rebellion or resentment rising up within your heart. That is dying to self. That's heavy, beloved. I read that sometimes several times a month. Talk a little bit more about how we could possibly accomplish such things at the end here. But let's look at the second challenge by Jesus. Second challenging requirement. Self-denial, second would be submission. Submission. Look back at the text with me. Mark chapter 8, 34. And Jesus says, "...and calling the crowd to Him with His disciples, He said to them, If anyone would come after Me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow Me." Familiar words, right? Meaning of Jesus' words here, though, are unfortunately seriously misunderstood or have been watered down by, the, by modern readers, sometimes preachers, and because of that, they lack the shock value that they should communicate when you hear them. To the original audience, connecting this idea of taking up the cross Taking up the cross with being a disciple of Jesus would have been a, a very difficult thing for that audience to hear and embrace. 
What do you mean? Jesus, what are you, are you kidding? Following you requires us to take up the cross? We, don't, we hear it and we don't understand it. The idea of taking someone taking up their cross would have been well known to the Jewish people because at the time they were forced to live under the authority of Rome, which included the judicial use, or judicial, that is, judicial use of the cross. That means they used the cross as a method of punishment. The government would punish their people, and the cross was that method. It was one of the most cruel and painful method of execution used by the Roman Empire for the worst of its criminals. And we've looked at that as we've looked at the final chapters of, of Mark, as we, we saw that Jesus himself endured this cross. It was painful. One of the most painful and horrific ways for someone to end their life. Prior to the actual, actual execution, the condemned criminal would be forced to pick up and carry part of his cross, the cross beam, as he was paraded through the streets by the Roman soldiers on the way to the place where he would ultimately be crucified, executed. The rebellious criminal who was disobedient to the laws of Rome was forced to publicly display for all to see his submission to Rome by bearing his cross on the way to his death. When someone took up their cross, beloved, there was no turning back. One writer says this in regard to taking up one's cross. This would have brought to mind the sight of a condemned man who was forced to demonstrate his submission to Rome by carrying part of his cross through the city to his place of execution. Thus, to take up one's cross was to demonstrate publicly one's submission and obedience to the authority against which he had previously rebelled. One writer goes on to say this, what the convict, the condemned, does under duress, that means under force, what they're forced to do, the disciple of Christ does willingly. Christians, those who follow Jesus, those who claim or identify themselves as Christians, are called upon to voluntarily, willingly, submit their lives to Jesus and to any suffering that may result from being loyal to Him. They are not to run from it or to run from Christ, but willingly endure it for the sake of Christ in obedience to Him. That's pretty hard, huh? As I said before, the idea of taking up the cross has now come to mean many different things over time, but unreserved submission to Christ, regardless of what it might cost you personally, does not seem to be one of the popular opinions. I wonder why. People often now relate cross-bearing or taking up one's cross to simply enduring some difficulty in their life totally often, totally unrelated to following Jesus, such as a 
mean boss or a mean mother-in-law. I don't know. I don't know why those two just went together in my mind. but Or poor health. I have a great mother-in-law, by the way. Or poor health or financial challenges. So all of these things, some of these are examples where people will talk about this is my cross to bear. Beloved, regarding cross-bearing, one writer says, the concept should never be cheapened by applying it to enduring some irritation or even a major burden. Don't cheapen it. Don't suck it out of it all that it means until it means almost nothing. One writer says, it does not refer to bearing patiently the aches and pains of life. It does not, beloved. That's not how they would have understood it. Think with me for a moment. All people, just think it through, all people, including those who are not Christians, those who do not follow Jesus Christ, know and experience the pains and problems associated with living in a broken and messed up world. Do they not? Do not our lost neighbors also have incredible problems? Do they not also have difficult bosses? Difficult relationships? Do they not lose their jobs? Do they not have medical conditions that threaten their very lives? And they do not follow Christ. Does that mean, if if that's what taking up the cross means, does that mean that they are taking up their cross as Jesus has required of His disciples? No. That would make this verse mean something that Jesus never intended it to. And like many things in Scripture, the church today, over the years, has watered this down to the point where it means absolutely nothing. And when we talk about taking up our cross, it means i got a cold i got to deal with. Or some diet i got to face. It doesn't mean that, beloved. Additionally, we should consider what is written in Luke 9.23 because there, a little extra word is added. Jesus tells us, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily. Daily and follow me. So, does that mean that if I'm in a season of life where things are going fairly well, and beloved, we do have those seasons from time to time, right? Where things seem to be good. No real problems to speak of. Okay, so then according to Luke, being that I need to take up my cross daily, which has wrongly come to mean just putting up with some difficulty or problem or irritation in my life, then would I need to acquire some problem or difficulty in my life in order to comply with what Jesus has commanded me to do? Look, I have no cross to bear. I better find one. Because logically, that's where you must go if that's what cross-bearing means. If you want to be obedient. But that is not what cross-bearing means. Taking up your cross and following Jesus is not a reference to putting up or enduring with the problems of life, but rather it is the continual and daily act of submitting to the Lord Jesus Christ regardless of the cost. Verse 
regardless of the cost. Even if doing so might result in suffering, in persecution, and even death. Now that kind of terminology, that kind of statement just kind of flies right over our heads. But for many Christians in our world today, that's a reality to them. When they take up the cross, when they submit to Christ, when they proclaim His name, regardless of the cost, they might die, and they do. That's what it means. That's what Jesus has called His disciples, His followers, Christians to. Utter submission, regardless of the cost, every day. One writer says this, Jesus' submission to God's will is the proper response to God's claims over self's claims. You remember Jesus in the garden? Wrestling, you can leave it up, wrestling, talking to God. Father, may this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours. I'll, I'll do it. No matter what the cost, I will follow you. For Him, beloved, it meant death on the cross. That's what it meant for Jesus. Those who follow Him, still reading the quote, I don't know what happened to it, so I'll just read it to you. Those who follow Him must take up their, not His, cross. They must take up their cross. Whatever comes to them in God's will, as a follower of Jesus. Beloved, this does not mean suffering as He did. None of us could ever do that. None of us will ever suffer as He did, nor does it mean being crucified as He was. If it means that, then every one of us need to nail ourselves to a cross. It doesn't mean that. Nor does it mean, as we've talked about, patiently bearing life's troubles. It can't mean that. Rather, it is obedience to God's will as revealed in His Word. What's the Word? What, what is the Word? The Bible. It is obedience to God's will as revealed in His Word, accepting the consequences without reservations for Jesus' sake and the Gospel. For some... This includes physical suffering and even death as history has repeatedly demonstrated and I might add continues to do so. Maybe one day in this country. Maybe soon. Beloved, I want you to understand that Jesus is not saying as I wrap this up or suggesting in any way that we earn our way into heaven with Him by being good little followers who faithfully practice self-denial and submission to God. That is not what He's saying. But here's what He's saying and here's what He's making very clear. This is what following Jesus should actually look like. This is what it looks like. This is what it looks like to be a disciple. This is what it looks like to be a Christian. This is what it looks like for any of you who identify yourself under that term. I'm a Christian. Are you? 
this is what it should look like. In Mark, as we went through the book, we saw twelve, the twelve disciples, remember them? Failing repeatedly to live up to the requirements of being His disciple. They were miserable at self-denial and absolute surrender and submission. They abandoned Jesus. They fled. But after they were filled with the Holy Spirit, as recorded in Acts chapter 2, they became living examples for us of what it means to die to self and to continually submit to the Lord no matter what. How did they accomplish that, beloved? Five-hour power energy drink or just a little bit of of God in their lives? The same power that every truly born-again Christian has right now. That has today. But the problem is, too many who identify as Christians, say they're followers of Christ, say they're disciples are merely professors, not possessors. What does that mean? They don't have the Spirit of God living inside of them. They've never really put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. They've never really repented and turned to Him and Him alone. And they're walking around identifying themselves as Christians, but they do not possess the power to live This radical, challenging Christian life that Jesus calls every one of His people to. And therefore they don't. And that confuses us. We've got people identifying as Christians but living in a way that is absolutely contrary to what the Word of God says for those who say they follow Christ. Additionally, within some circles of Christianity today, there is a false distinction that has been made between a believer, Christian, and a, quote, disciple. The thinking goes something like this, and it is wrong and bad. You can become a Christian and be saved, but that doesn't necessarily mean you will or have to really follow Christ. You might decide to do that later on in your life, or you may not at all but you're still saved because you walked an aisle or you raised your hand or you prayed some prayer. Let me be clear. That thinking does not come from the Bible. You will not find it. You will find the exact opposite. Jesus' instructions to His disciples, let me remind you, before He ascended to the Father from Matthew 28:19, were this, Go and make disciples! Go and make disciples! What does it mean to be a disciple? To deny yourself, pick up your cross, and follow after Me. Those are the kind of people I want you to go make. So he did. Go and make disciples of all nations. Then he tells them, baptizing them and teaching them. What? To observe. To do. All that I commanded you. Huh? Matthew 28, 19. The disciples were to make disciples, followers of Jesus, those who would observe or do all that Christ had commanded. Those who would deny themselves and pick up their cross 
and follow after Him. None of us, beloved, none of us can live up to the requirements of discipleship in our own strength. None of us. Try it. You will fail miserably. I know by experience. But by the grace and power of God, through the Holy Spirit that He has given to those who have trusted, truly trusted in Jesus Christ, we can make progress in these things and we must, we must, if we don't, or we won't, okay? If we don't or we won't, then we need to consider if it is right to continue to identify ourselves as Christians. Is that clear? Stop confusing people. Stop lying to yourself. However, and by the way, before I close out here, if you have questions about whether or not you truly are a follower of Christ, if you know already, and it's clear to you, you've never put your faith in Christ, there's a guy right here. Now, I would say this any week. Any week you can come up. I would love to talk to you about that. I would love to show you what the Word of God says about coming to Christ, about becoming one of His followers, about receiving that power that you are absolutely going to need if you have any hope of living for Him. But this man right here, he's... He would love nothing more right now today. It would be a treat for him if you would come and talk to him and ask him how you could come to know Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior. He would, he would probably fall to pieces in joy to be able to share that good news with you. However, if you are a true follower of Christ, if you do know him, if His Spirit resides inside of you, then my prayer is that by faith in the power of the cross and what the cross has accomplished on our behalf and the power of the Holy Spirit living inside of us, dwelling, that we might, be to, we might strive, beloved, to live as Jesus has instructed us to those of us who identify ourselves as His followers, as Christians, that we might live in this way more and more every day, denying ourselves and picking up our cross for His glory and for our good. Let's pray. Father God, I, I thank You for Mark. It has been an incredible book for me to study over over the year, a couple years now, as we've gone through this book. And, and Father, it, it really reveals to us the awesomeness and glory of Your Son, Jesus Christ. The One who is not just asking us, please, to come follow Him, but is commanding us as Lord and Creator of all, to bow before Him humbly 
and place our faith and our trust in what He has done on our behalf and follow Him with all of our heart and mind and soul, relying completely on the strength that He provides that we might do that. Father, I thank You for Mark. I thank You again for just this verse here. And wow, it's challenging. Father, I pray that those of us who are in this room and who do not know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior and, or maybe are even deceived about that, they think they know. But there's no evidence for that reality. No transformation. No changed life. And they continue to deceive themselves. Father, would you break through that? the mighty strength of Your Spirit, would You break through that? Would You grant them the ability to see, to hear, that they might turn to Christ and cast themselves upon His mercy and His grace that they might truly be saved and come to know the power that You alone give to live for Him. Father, for those of us who who know You, we must rely upon You. And this is just a passage that drives that point home deeper than many other passages in, in my estimation. Father, how am I supposed to deny myself? I'm in love with myself. Take up my cross. I... I don't want to submit. And I certainly don't want to suffer. So Father, I must find the strength to live for You. And I know living for You is my greatest good. I must remind myself of that every day. But I must find my strength to live for You in the Spirit that You have given me in the truth and realities of the cross that I have died to sin and it no longer enslaves my soul. I have been set free now to live for You and to follow after You with all my being. And the Holy Spirit supernaturally empowers me to walk and follow after You, keeping my eyes fixed on You. Forgetting about the difficult path that I am taking. We pray all these things in Christ's glorious name. Amen.